listening to the Film Monsters Podcast with me and Ray. <laughs> well, hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of the Film Monsters Podcast. I am Nate. And I am a very emotionally scarred ray after what nate did to me this week <laughs> i made ray watch multiple yorgos lanthimos films in a row but before we get into that ray i just wanted to talk about how you know it's december and we're coming up towards the end of the year and you and i have been doing this for a while now i know our year anniversary is coming up i mean not soon soon but it's coming up no it's insane and it's like i was looking and with our our recent mini-sode that we released, we've released 29 episodes. This is the 30th episode we've released of this podcast. And I will say, like, I know we don't have the largest audience, but I really do feel this, like, sense of fulfillment every week doing this with you. And every single time we go to record, it's a it's a huge highlight of my week. I always really look forward to it. And I did want to say, and I know I'm sure we'll say something when we talk at the end of the year, but I just wanted to personally say thank you to all of you out there that are listening to us every single week and that comment on our posts. Like, it just means a lot to me. And I think Ray and I started this more of just like a, hey, we're two guys that we love to talk about movies. We want an excuse to talk about movies. And it's turned into something so much more that I just enjoy this week after week to where I feel like we have a plethora of ideas for episodes and it'll be damn near impossible to run out. I had a, I, I don't know if you noticed, because I usually am the one running the, the social media page, but I don't know if you noticed, I shared something, our, my buddy Ryan um, posted, made a post of his most listened to podcast um, of this year, and we made the cut for him, so shout out to to my boy Ryan out there for listening to us. Yes, thank you so much, That is that's really awesome, and obviously, you know, Ray and I are, are doing what we can to grow it. Uh, we promote it where we can. I know that I do and I know that he does. And it's one of those things that if you if you like us and you enjoy us, share it with somebody. Tell them about us. If you think that they love film and that they would enjoy this format, let them know. Because uh, the more people that listen, the more conversation we can have. And maybe people want to give us recommendations for episodes. And that's a really cool idea because Ray and I are not opposed to having involvement with uh, other people and listeners. And we want the audience to grow and we want people to be a big part of this. Absolutely. I feel like often when people hear maybe some of these episodes, it's like, oh, well, you guys talk about all these obscure stuff. Like, we just talk about it because that's what we find ourselves watching. But, I mean, if you want to talk about, like, some mainstream movie, like, you'd be surprised how many mainstream movies I haven't seen yet. Like, you might think, that you might think, there, oh, there's no way he hasn't seen X, Y, and Z. But I, I promise you, I haven't seen at least X or Y. Hey, you know what's funny? All you listeners out there, for all of you that are like, oh, Nate's this guy who went to film school and he has all this knowledge. I have never seen any of the Godfather movies. Yeah, same. <laughs> None. I've never I've never seen any of them. And you know what? Like, 
it's one of those things and I, I do love this about the online community when it comes to film is I feel like there's a lot less gatekeeping about that stuff anymore. And, and you know, it's like I had one guy comment on like a TikTok video one time and was like, what's your film knowledge if you haven't seen this movie? And I said, I commented back and said, you know, I could probably flip back and name 16 different films you've never seen and try to say, oh, what's your film knowledge? But the beauty of film knowledge as a whole is it doesn't matter what you've seen. It just matters what's important to you and how things have resonated with you just because you may not have seen the Shawshank Redemption or Schindler's List or some of these IMDB top 100 movies that doesn't make you any less of a movie lover it just means you love different things and you prioritize different things first we're on the topic you I this literally just popped into my brain while we're on the topic I'm sure you've heard of the American Film Institute I have you know how they published their 100 um, films yes so I just pulled up the list. I'm just going to read the first 10. And I'm curious how many we've seen just from the first 10. Okay. Number 10, The Wizard of Oz. Yes. Yes. Number 9, Vertigo. Yes. No, I haven't seen Vertigo. Number 8, Schindler's List. No. Yes. Number 7, Lawrence of Arabia. No. Nope. Number 6, Gone with the Wind. I have only seen parts of it. I have never seen it start to finish. Same. Um, number five, Singing in the Rain. I watched it the first time this year. I, I watched it when I was younger with my dad. Um, number four, Raging Bull. I'm surprised. No, but I am surprised that that is the uh, the Scorsese film that's that high on the list. Yeah, I haven't seen that either, but yeah. Um, number three, Casablanca. Yes. I haven't. Number two, The Godfather. We just answered that one. And number one, Citizen Kane. Yes, I love Citizen Kane. I love Citizen Kane too, but I just wanted to do that exercise just to show that like, I think you and I both got like maybe six of them out of 10. Mm -hmm. I've taken the quiz Mm -hmm. of the 100 and I am missing a ton of them. Yeah, but I think it just goes to show exactly what we said. It's like, it, it depends on what your priority is. Like, you and I are someone who, we're both people who love the Criterion collection. And Criterion collects a lot of older films from all different eras and genres and that gives us a lot of excuse to watch those types of movies. But I do feel like, especially this new generation of film lovers are constantly seeking the new and and the exciting. And that doesn't always give us the time to revisit some of these older films. Not to say that we won't, but I think it kind of pushes them back, especially like when you know they're great. You know what I mean? It's like everyone says they're great. You already know that you're going to enjoy them. So I think it's more of the excitement of seeking out something new as the possibility of finding something great that may not already be established as great yeah absolutely and i don't know i i really enjoy even watching some of these older movies that the whole world apparently has seen but i haven't and it's been really fun too because once i watch them it doesn't feel like a shame like oh man it's taking me so long it just feels like it can be an even bigger part of the film conversation which is ultimately the end game that we're all talking about these movies one way or another, you know? And that's how I felt. Uh, I know I mentioned it uh, on a recent episode. I think it was our Criterion picks, but I watched In the Mood for Love for the first time, which like in the film community and like at film school, that was the movie everyone talked about all the time. You have to see this movie. And it's exactly what you said. I watched it and I was finally like, now I know what everyone's talking about. Now I understand the love for it. Same way I'm sure you felt the first time you watched Citizen Kane. That's how I felt. I was like, now I understand why people think Citizen Kane is one of the greatest films of all time. I finally get the Rosebud reference. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Also, how impressive is it that not only did Orson Welles direct that film, but acted the hell out of it. And like, 
for that era of filmmaking, his like age makeup is incredible. Now you have to watch Ma- now you have to watch Mank. He's like almost unrecognizable, and I still haven't seen Mank, and I love David Fincher, but I need to watch that movie really badly. All right, so sir, speaking of movies that you need to watch badly, you had me watch three movies that I needed to watch badly, but left me in a very badly state of being. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, and that is from uh, from newer acclaimed filmmaker uh oscar nominated multiple oscar nominated filmmaker uh mr yorgos lanthimos uh ray's own personal greek torture artist (laughs) (laughs) um uh, so as many of you know because i've mentioned mr lanthimos on this podcast multiple times i am a huge admirer of his work he's probably in my top he's in my top five possibly competing for the the number one spot of what my favorite filmmakers working so ray i just really quickly would like to get an initial reaction out of you uh i know obviously you said tortured you but like did you enjoy the films is he someone you're going to be interested in from now on just give a brief reaction and then i'll talk about my exposure to him and how i figured out about his movies i feel like the the way that it unfolded for me is so it's it's hard to tell because I feel like I wasn't ready for it. And, and like, I know we joked about it earlier off the podcast and no one really is ready for it. But I really wasn't. Look, Nate, I've seen all sorts of weird stuff. I've watched all sorts of weird, crazy stuff out there. Um, you know, you name it. I've seen enough to hold my own when it comes to film. But I was not ready for what I saw. And I don't mean that I'm like, he was some shock factor or some shocking film that just shook me to my core. It's just like the way how it's filmed, the way how the lines are delivered, the way how it's written, the concepts being thrown in there. I mean, this guy did do a lot of stuff that are fairly unconventional. The topics that he, that he portrays, but he does it in this, like it almost feels satirized in a way. And I appreciate that. And I am interested in watching more of his, of his stuff, but now I do feel like I have I kind of have a handle of how he how he operates. So it'll be a lot easier to watch other films in the future, um, especially after this conversation we're about to have. But I did enjoy his films. I was just not prepared for some of the stuff, and he's really good. Like there were some moments where I was like, why why I I actually even texted you after I was done watching The Lobster, I'm like, why are you making me watch these beautiful animals get killed? I hate you so much. <laughs> it is, and I I honestly, I watched an interview with Lanthimos once, and he is an animal lover, and from the way that he talks about it, most of the time it is just to convey the general evil of humanity. And I think that it really does, it really does hit you hard, especially like, I know for myself, being someone who has three dogs and they're my entire world, whenever I see animals die in a movie, it's really difficult to watch but I always think it's interesting because you know we watch so many movies where people get killed and we're so desensitized to it that like we don't even think about it but there's something about the purity of an animal and when an animal is killed that it just hits you so much harder and he's one of the directors that when it happens in his films I'm like it really does unsettle you even more than it normally does in a movie. Well, the thing about it, too, is that, like you said, I like I know it's, like you said, he's an animal lover, and I know those animals really aren't getting hurt 
in real life. Like, I know he's not actually harming animals, but he is so good at showing you these images. And, like, you know, even some of the, like, you see the, the, the rabbits or the dog, and you know, like, this is obviously fake because you know that we live in an era where that wouldn't fly in the film set. But... But but it's done in a way that it's so it's so well um, executed that it is just unsettling. Regardless, it still makes your stomach turn. It's very visceral, and that's what uh, I'll talk a little bit more about when we get into his films. There's this visceral nature to all of his movies that like it it feels grounded in reality, but it also feels so fantastical. And it's like I talked with Ray on the off the podcast before we started. There's this sense of really dark comedy throughout all of his films. And there are moments where Ray and I discuss, like, sometimes you find yourself laughing at things that you shouldn't be laughing at. But he conveys it in a way that it's, like, impossible not to. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. There were moments where I was like, you know, should I talk a little bit more about this? But there was that that scene that that I'm sure Nate's going to bring up with one of the movies where he's talking about... um, these children and they're like crawling on the floor and it's and I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about a specific scene that had me giggling but at the same time i'm like i feel bad for laughing at this it's the way he holds on shots too he if you've noticed he has a lot of long takes in his movies he does not like to pull the camera away from horrifying imagery like you're gonna have to look at it and i think that's what it is it's like so uncomfortable you don't necessarily know how to react because you're typically seeing something that you wouldn't see in everyday life yeah yeah it's definitely well and then the way how the how the characters behave um a constant thing that i noticed on all of his movies is he uses the same type of dialogue and it's not the actors because i've seen colin farrell do funny i've seen colin farrell on the gentleman be like laugh out loud hilarious I've seen Colin Farrell be over the top like in the Batman. But this version of Colin Farrell was different. Very subdued, very awkward, very deadpan. Same thing with Nicole Kidman. Um, these aren't new actors that just learned how to do this. They've been doing it for years. And watching the dialogues that they have, it's so uncomfortable. You know, almost like, I don't know. There's some fantastical aspect of it. It's almost like the Lanthimos world. There's an Anthemus, like a Yorgos multiverse out there. And everyone is like that. Like that feels like it's its own world. Colin Farrell fits into Lanthimos movies the way Owen Wilson fits into Wes Anderson movies. I feel like he's just perfect for the role. And I did want to ask you a quick question before we go further, Ray, which is that after watching three of his films... Do you feel like he's establishing himself as a filmmaker that you could turn on a movie, not see his directorial credit, and immediately know it's a movie made by him? From those three, yes. I And I will tell you that from seeing his other films, it's the exact same. All his films are shot the same. They, I, I don't want to say shot the same because they're not, but they have very similar framing devices. And something about the dialogue, I feel like it's just like, you know you're watching a Yorgos Lanthimos movie when you start it immediately. Yeah, and the, and the funny thing is, you might you might think to yourself, oh, English is a second language, you know, he doesn't, but like his Greek movies, at least Dogtooth, is the same. Um, another like similarity that I noticed throughout all three films is his choice in scores. 
Yes, very classical music always. They're very similar type of music. A lot of string arrangements, a lot of classical arrangements. You know, you're not gonna hear some synth, some eerie synths. You're not gonna hear some like over the top, you know, percussions. No, it's very classical throughout the runtime. Yorgos made me fall in love with Lacrimosa, which I've I'd heard that song over and over again. But his use of it in the in the I believe it's in the Lobster. Uh, is perfect. I actually bought that um, soundtrack on vinyl and I listen to it quite frequently. I hope that some of his other movies get the treatment. I know he doesn't normally have like an original composer. It's normally just a collection of different like string arrangements and classical pieces. But there's something about it that just creates this ambiance that's so unique compared to a lot of other filmmakers. And I'll quickly say before we dive into his filmography, my exposure to Lanthimos was I saw the trailer for The Lobster and I knew nothing about him as a filmmaker. And I sat down and I watched it and I, the credits rolled and I, I was immediately like, this is unlike anything I've ever seen in my life. And this is probably one of the most excited I've been about a filmmaker in quite some time. And I immediately sat down the next day and watched it right away and so i went back and revisited dogtooth and alps and then i actually saw killing of a sacred deer and the favorite in theaters and he's just one of my favorite filmmakers and ray and i'll talk about it but i think what i love so much about him and this was something we talked about off the podcast is the way he examines the human psyche in such a unique way that i think the extreme levels that he takes the subject matter makes it almost more vulnerable because rather than just explore it at a very surface level, you dive into the most uncomfortable areas of where this subject matter can go, which I think makes the topic so much more easy to explore when you have fleshed out the most extreme elements of the circumstances in these movies. And it's just something I immediately fell in love with. And Ray, I'm glad you were able to experience these and I can't wait to discuss them in more detail with you as we go through his filmography yeah i'm excited so unfortunately i haven't seen all of them so there will be moments where i won't really have much to add to the conversation but for the sake of of getting this party on the road let's do it yes so i went on to his uh i went on to his wikipedia and i realized looking at this i thought that he only had six feature length films but technically he has seven he has one called my best friend that was released in 2001 but he co-directed it with a, a person with another wild name named lackeys lazapoulos another greek man uh i have never seen that and i have never seen his second feature from 2009 Kaneda, which is one that's a little bit harder to find. Uh, I think Criterion had it streaming on the channel for a while and I just missed it. I don't know why I've never watched it, but what I can say is all of his films post Kaneda have been very wildly renowned and people really love them. I know Kaneda is one that a lot of general audiences are torn on, so I still haven't seen those, but what we can jump into is the first film that Ray and I both have seen in his catalog, which is in the year 2009. He released Dogtooth, which as I said to Ray, this is the film he was nominated for uh, Best Foreign Language Film at the 83rd Academy Awards. Dogtooth, man, this movie. This is a, such a strange movie. Yeah. <laughs> this this movie, that's, exa that's exactly the, uh, the right way to say it, is this movie. Uh, this movie is one of the most wild movies that I've ever seen in my life. 
Uh, it's very uncomfortable. It's very tense. Uh, there's like subject matter that will probably make a lot of viewers out there incredibly uncomfortable. Uh, but essentially the quick premise to this movie is there's a husband and wife couple who live at a house with their two adult daughters and their son and their kids don't know anything about the outside world. They essentially keep them locked inside other than like the few times they let them go out and play in the yard where they have them play these like, the, well, at least the kids play these really weird games like uh, the finger in the hot water thing. Yeah. What? Like, like all these, all these really crazy things. And you start to you start to get the weird parts of their lives like the dad hires this woman to come have sex with a son and there's like all these like really weird things that occur and you find out that they don't even know what certain words mean like they don't even teach them what the word telephone is it's like they tell them that that's a different word so that if they were able to research it they wouldn't really know what it was they would be confused and they tell them that the most evil creature is the creature that lives outside their house which is a house cat um and the movie is really just about this dynamic between this father who wants to be hyper controlling and literally run every element of his children's lives and these kids that are getting to the age in their life where they want to know more they want to get out of this day-to-day but they don't really know how to. And it's a fascinating commentary on parenthood. I would argue though, that these are not technically kids. These are like, no, they're, they're grown. They're probably in, I would say where they're at there, they're probably in their twenties. I would imagine. Yeah. Maybe the youngest one being like 18 or 19. Yeah. But they have the mind of children. Yeah. They definitely have the mind of children. Um, they behave as such. They're still, you know, even though they are fully grown people, like, they play with toys and they have very kiddish type games. Um, and they are so like oblivious to the things happening all around them. And I thought, I thought it was really interesting at the very beginning, like they're listening to a uh, cassette recording of, of their mom teach, like teaching them words. And right away you can tell like she's teaching the wrong meaning to these words, but they're also like, cause later, but you also get a sense that they're also very, um, they're very smart certain topics. Like one of the the girls is very knowledgeable on like um, anatomy and medicine. So that they're not dumb per se. They are just, they have the mind of a kid. It's very pick and choosy, which, like I said, I think is a very big commentary on just parenthood in general and like what what lengths parents will go to to keep information from their kids or what they want them to know. And I think that's fascinating you brought that up because I thought that was really interesting the first time I watched this movie too is like the things that they let them. And uh, what I think is really interesting about this movie is obviously there is inclusion of incest in this film. But it's one of those things where it like makes sense in this world because these kids, uh, we call them kids, but they don't know anything else. They don't even really know what exists outside of the small world that they live in. So when those sequences happen, you just more than anything feel bad for them. Yeah, you do. And there was also something that I thought was really interesting that way how they go about their day at first, like they're rewarded stickers, you know, like... yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which is something else I laughed really hard at. They get up and they start counting their stickers. Oh, I know. It's 
and there's there's a lot of uh there's a lot of moments in this movie that it, it's it's like i said before yorgos puts these things in his films that you're watching these and you're like should i be laughing at this and and, and it's like you do laugh but you you shouldn't uh and then like like for instance there's the one scene in the movie where the daughter looks at her mom and says mom what's a cunt her mom's like where did you learn that word and the mom says uh it was on a it was on a case on top of the vcr and she says a cunt is a large lamp an example is the cunt switched off and the room got all dark and you're just like you're laughing your ass off because situationally that's hilarious but it's also really disturbing because it, it's like if a person was treated that way and then released into the re- real world, it would be treated as a freak or an outcast. I thought it was also really interesting, the inclusion of the of the brother that's allegedly on the other side of the fence. I just thought that was a really interesting thing that they had because there were some choices that the parents do that I didn't quite understand why they did it. Like the fact that they lied about a brother being on the other side of that fence. So it, it but it's almost like a psychological, you know, thing that they're doing to the kids. Even like when they bring that woman to have sex with the son and, you know, they, the kids behave as though she's like a part of the family. It's so, it's so wild. And Ray has, Ray has a little bit more insight into this because it's been a little while since I've watched it. But, uh, the, the, the level of, of weird abstract ideas that's added into this what's relatively simple premise like the whole concept of the dog tooth and that the like this is obviously a thing that it's like okay what the fuck are they even talking about but like he says you can leave the house once you lose your dog tooth but they don't even really know what the dog tooth is from what I can from what I can suss out. It doesn't seem like they really know what that even is. Yeah, no, it doesn't seem like they know either. Um, I think they do eventually make a connection that's like they're talking about the fang on their on their mouth. But even that's like if you think about it through the lens of a controlling parent when, you know, like all their teeth are out. And they like we we've mentioned earlier they're adults so it's not like they have their their original baby teeth anymore like lot logistically that's not gonna fall off anytime soon. Exactly yes and I and I think that's the thing is like they create this idea of you could possibly get out of the house but they make it in a way that it's like we know they're never getting out of there they're trying to make this a way that is impossible for these kids to escape and what i think is really interesting and this is jumping a little bit ahead is there's a period of time where the um christina who's the girl that they've hired to come have sex with a son she keeps coming to the house and she seems to take an interest in one of the daughters and she like ends up bartering the older daughter for oral sex and she like tells her no but she ends up begging the girl for like these vhs tapes that she has and i told ray i can't remember because it's been a while but i think one of them is jaws and i can't remember what the other one is but she starts to learn more things about society and she tries to hide it but she ends up letting a lot of it slip and that's when problems really start to happen for the kids um, well, and then you have, <laughs> like, I know that I shouldn't, like, again, it's one of those situations where, like, should I laugh? Should I not laugh? When the dad finds out that Christina is 
um, giving them that she gave him the videotapes. He just takes the VHS player and smacks her with it. Yeah. And it has the best delivery of any line where he says, I hope your kids have bad influences and develop bad personalities. I wish that with all my heart. And I laughed so hard because I'm like, that's what you're doing to your own children. Yeah, the the irony of that statement. It's it's so funny. It's great. And and obviously there's a lot of things that happen uh, up in between that. Um Obviously, like, and and Ray talked, Ray mentioned it a little bit at the beginning of the episode, but when they, the son kills the cat, uh, it's a stray cat, but they don't, they just know the cats to be, like, these evil creatures, and so, like, he's horrified by it, and then the, the dad goes as far as, doesn't he, like, rip his clothes up and, like, covers himself with fake blood? Yeah, and they use that as an excuse to tell them that the... Their brother has died. Brother died. Yeah. And it's it's like he takes every situation and makes it like so extreme to keep his kids under this like locus of control. Even as far as like to do crazy things like when he, they, he plays them the Sinatra record, which is one of my favorite moments in the entire movie. It was just funny to me because he just like is basically like very just deadpan narrating the Sinatra song, but he seems so like almost like it's a chore for him to do it. Yeah. (laughs) I'm I'm thinking about it right now. I can't stop laughing. That's how, that's how bad it is. But this gets to a point in the movie where after that whole thing happens with Christina, the dad essentially says like, okay, you get to pick one of your sisters to have sex with, which I think is really interesting because it put into question for me, like, are these all, their biological children or did they kidnap some of them or like what exactly is going on and that's what i love about all of lanthimos's films is i feel like you can kind of piece that together in your head because there isn't anything necessarily stated that they're all biological which makes me question because like the father clearly was okay with like hiring this person and then beating the shit out of her with a vcr uh so who knows what they're capable of so the brother ends up picking one of the sisters after like really uncomfortably fondling them and that's when there's a scene that i say is like a combination of being disturbing and funny is when she ends up like yelling at him one of the dialogues from one of the movies that she watched and i i don't remember i wish i could remember i know that one of them uh is jaws but i cannot remember what the other movie is that she watched but whatever it is, it's the one that it's it's the movie that she quotes and like screams at him from. And you're laughing at it because of the absurdity of it, but at the same time, it's all she really knows. Well, but I think what makes that so interesting is that she says these things to him, and you can clearly tell that she's quoting a movie that she has no idea the context of what she's saying. It also kind of gives you the the idea that she hated the experience that she had with her brother. Yes, 100%. She knows it's bad in her own head. Yes, and she quotes something that too, because it's something really brutal, like, I will cut you open and make sure there's nothing left of you. It's like something really violent and brutal. 
it ends up working out, uh, or it ends up being hilarious, but also disturbing. And then that's what leads into one of my favorite sequences in the film, the dance sequence where <laughs> the older daughter does the choreography for Flash Dance, which... It's hilarious, but it's like, it's one of the movies she watched. So she's just doing what she's seen because it's what she's learned. And then that's when she gets to the point where you can tell she doesn't want to be in the house anymore. And she knocks out her own dog tooth, which is like, it's violent. And that's one of the things that is reoccurring in all of Lanthimos' films. And from the three Ray have watched, he can attest to this as well. And that is, he does not pull back from the violence. Uh, yeah, no, he doesn't. Definitely not. Doesn't pull back from the violence. I was going to point out though, there's a, a moment in the movie where you know, because there's a point in the in the film where I couldn't really tell if the mom was just as brainwashed because she just also really does some stuff that are just weird to me. But um, and he makes that comment that his wife isn't doing well mentally. I think, but that part when they're telling the kids like, your mom is pregnant. And she's going to bring uh, twins into this world and a dog. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I forgot about that scene. And then they're like, if you behave, she will, she'll be able to stop herself from giving birth to the kids. I was like, what in the world? <laughs> it's, it's just crazy the amount that they make up. But I, like I said, I think if you look at it from a larger perspective and the entire commentary that Yorgos is going for is like, there are, I mean, think about some of the crazy hyper conservative people in our society and the types of things that they will teach their children. Hell, Ray, we just lived through the COVID pandemic where people were trying to tell their kids that this sickness that was killing multiple people in our society wasn't even real. I mean, like... The, the things that the things that parents will do to their children to like try to shelter them from the world and to their own secret agenda on their kids is wild yeah no it, it's it's definitely weird um and not that far-fetched obviously Yorgos is going for a more satirical note but ultimately like that's not that far-fetched as far as some of the things that parents do to their kids in a way and I think that that exists through most of his filmography is that this idea of conveying a a message that we can all relate to, but in a very extreme way. Uh, and the extremism makes the the message not so like hit you over the head. It's much more subtle and nuanced, but in a way that I think because he does all those really extreme things makes it more effective. And I love Dogtooth. I, it, like every time I think about this movie, it just makes me want to revisit it because it's just so absurd and unique and i think that this really obviously i haven't seen his two previous films but he took a really large gap before he made Dogtooth. and i think this really establishes his style which i think ray can agree to exists throughout the remainder of his filmography and i just want to point something out um real quick before we move on the american poster versus the the greek poster are so stylistically different it's i feel like it just kind of speaks to what attracts different cultures because i feel like the american you know movie poster for dogtooth is like you have the girl covered in blood and then the pool and then i'm looking at the greek film poster and it's literally just like two lines like two little like pencil drawings that almost look like fangs kind of like very 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 simplistic i actually really like it better i have a uh, i have a shirt that has that drawing on it and like it has a cat and a dog and a bunch of animals around it 
<laughs> um, and I agree with you. I really like the simplistic poster. And I think like what you're saying, literally the American poster is one of the last shots of the film. Yeah. Like it just kind of like her bleeding out of her mouth. Yeah. It just kind of speaks a little bit just culturally what people are more, what some of the marketing tactics I, cause honestly, like I prefer the poster for this, the, the Greek poster. Mm-hmm. Yes. I completely agree with you. Um, but yeah, that's Dogtooth, and next up in Yorgos's catalog is a movie that Ray has not seen, and that is the 2011 film Alps, which I'll talk about briefly uh, since Ray hasn't seen it. Uh, but this is actually the first time that Yorgos ca- uh, casted his wife in the movie, uh, Ariana Labed, who, this will crack you up, Ray, but Yorgos's wife is the woman who plays the maid in The Lobster. <laughs> Oh, really? Yeah, that's his wife. Uh, she's been in a ton of movies. Uh, she was actually in the new Shutter original film Flux Gourmet that came out this year from the same director as uh, In Fabric that I told you that I really love. Uh, but she's been in a bunch of stuff. She's a really talented actress. But this movie simply is about a group that gets together and... I don't, the way they, they show them meet, it's not really a hundred percent sure how they even got together. Um, but they decide as this group that for a price that they go to these people who have, or families that have just lost a loved one and they act like the loved ones who have died for a fee. And the lead character is this girl who, uh, she ends up taking over watching this girl who she was a young high school tennis player who dies and she goes and lives with her parents but she also does all of these other families like she lives with all of them it's like these brief periods that that they go and stay and she has this father at home who she has this relationship with and you can tell it's very tense and strange that comes into play throughout the film but it's really a movie looking at how we as a society grieve and how we look at grief and if something like this existed would it really alleviate the grief or would it make it worse and there's obviously these really weird things that happen because like the the girl who's like playing this young girl you can tell that like the husband develops a little bit more of like a liking to her even though like there's this unwritten idea of like okay i'm supposed to be your daughter which then puts into question in your own mind like was this man attracted to his daughter or has he lost that idea of that this girl isn't her his daughter because it's crazy crazy these people act exactly the way they did with their the people and their families before they passed away and i think similarly to what we talked about with dogtooth this movie looks so into grief and losing a loved one in a way that i think is so extreme thinking about a service that would be offered where you could literally like pay someone to act like your significant other or your passed away child or grand grandparent. It's such a fantastic film. There's obviously a lot of really deadpan humor in this one as well. And it's a super unique movie. And uh, it's very much in line with the themes that Dogtooth is conveying. I really like this one a lot. It's not my favorite in his catalog, but I still love it. And it's another one of his... Uh, his Greek language films. Uh, and it's just, it's really bizarre. And I really want you to see it at some time, Ray, because it is wild. That does sound super weird. <laughs> it is. It's real. It's really weird. But what's really interesting is like the interactions between all of these different people and seeing how they 
react to having this person come in their lives because you could tell some of the families at first it's like this really uncomfortable thing but then they get to a point where they're just used to it and they treat it just like it's normal so i'm doing i did some i pulled something up real quick because i got curious because of the motifs that yorgos has um i think it's worth mentioning i just because i'm kind of following along with his filmography over here and i I guess he's part of something called the Greek Weird Wave, um, which, um, from what I'm reading here, says that the Greek Weird Wave refers to the emergence of subversive brand of films in the last two decades, which explores political and cultural issues in unsettling ways, um, which that perfectly describes what Yorgos is doing. Exactly. Explains a lot, and we'll we'll get into The Lobster. I don't know if you want to jump into The Lobster at this point yes we can jump right into the lobster uh which he took a a four-year break before making the lobster and this is his first english language film because i think it's worth noting that in the lobster even from the very like um beginning the way how (laughs) you know i love that scene when colin farrell which by the way i thought this was a really interesting topic to be discussed for the lobster but it started out as kind of kind of humorous to me at first when they're like, do you are do you identify as um, heterosexual or homosexual? And he, oh, it's like, do you want a woman or a man partner? And he was like, a woman. And then he stops and he's like, although I did have a homosexual relationship once. Doesn't he say like that he identified as bisexual and they say something like, we don't have any more room for that right now. <laughs> oh, he's like, do you have a bisexual option? And he and she and she's like, no. Yeah, she said something along the lines of like the experiment was causing way too many variables or something like that. Yes, that's what it is. It's ah, it's so good. And I love how I had no idea what this movie was about when I started watching. So seeing his wife leave him at the beginning and literally like a government vehicle throwing him in a van, like just like, oh, we're taking you to this hotel. You don't get any choice. I thought it was really interesting, though, the world that they live in. It's almost like it's mandatory to be in a relationship. Yes, exactly. Which, uh, boy, is that a commentary on culture. Yes. Where where you are completely, uh, you are completely ostracized uh, as a as a human being for that. And I wanted to say because I thought this was interesting. Uh, do you know the actor Jason Clark? Yes. So he was supposed to be Colin Farrell's role originally, and he got recasted, which I I think is great because I think Colin Farrell is perfect. But what I thought you'd think is really interesting is Rachel Wise was originally supposed to be played by Elizabeth Olsen. Oh, that's even more interesting. Yeah, and so she got recast, but I think I think the casting ended up working out perfectly because I think the two of them are perfect. And I love how this movie is kind of split into to two separate things where you get the structure of this hotel and how it operates. And then the people who have sort of escaped that and are living on the, the single people (laughs) living on the outskirts and treated essentially like Neanderthals. But at the same time, those same people are very controlling in their ways as well. Exactly. But I do love that, that, that part of being in that hotel is going out to hunt them. Oh Yeah. (laughs) It's, it's so, it's so wild, but I I think what's, what's great is, and we can talk about it a little bit more. This is my favorite Lanthimos movie. I love it so much. Uh, but the idea behind these relationships isn't, 
You don't just get to date someone. Someone has to share some kind of superficial trait with you. It's not just like you could date whoever you want. It's like the guy, the, there's like one who there's a, there's a guy that, that Colin Farrell becomes friends with who he becomes fascinated with this woman who she has constant nosebleeds. And so he starts smashing his face into the wall to give himself nosebleeds. So the two of them can start dating when he smashed his face into the wall. The first time Ray, I cried laughing so hard. Well, I actually found them more, even more humorous when he was like, you don't get those bleeds. He's like, no, so how do you do it? And he doesn't tell him, oh, I smashed my face. He smashes his face in front of yeah. Colin Farrell. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, it's it's so good. Is that the same guy who gives the monologue about his mom? Yeah, because he has a limp. He's he's looking for someone that has a limp. And well, and I loved the part where he was like, hey, I saw a new group of, peop- of women coming in. One of them had a limp. He's like, no, nah, that's just a tour ACL. She'll be fine in a couple of weeks. <laughs> Uh, my favorite is that poor Colin Farrell's only trait that he has is he's nearsighted, nearsighted. and he just can't find anyone. But my one of my favorite characters in this movie is um, the girl that he goes after, who I'm pretty sure is the same girl from Dogtooth that is the, the woman who's pure evil. No, that has no feelings whatsoever. Yes, and so he decides that he wants to have no feelings either. Yes, that is the same actress. That's Angeliki Papulia, who was in Dogtooth. Um, but that's where I told Ray one of my favorite scenes is when he kicks that little girl. <laughs> he's like, I don't have time for children right now. <laughs> well, then the, well, then the girl is like, like crying and she's like you should thank me now you have a limp like your father (laughs) and he just he he's so desperate to like find somebody that he's willing to turn evil and uh her demise is pretty wild i would say (laughs) i love i do love though that part where where he's like can i join you and he's like sitting there and she puts like an olive in her mouth and starts choking and she's just like faking that she's choking and she passes out in front of him and he's just staring at her all deadpan and she wakes up and looks at him I think we're a match I also think it's really interesting and I wanted to bring this up uh, because it's something I think about every time I watch this movie about how ingenious that Lanthimos is with some of his social commentary so one of the hotel's rules is you can't masturbate. You have to be sexually stimulated by the hotel mate. They don't, they they make this, because like Ray was talking about it before the podcast where Colin Farrell's like, do I really have to do this? Well, and then she, she gets him aroused and she's like, okay, I gotta go. And he's like, that's awful. That's terrible. Yeah. But what I wanted to say, because I think that this is a really fascinating idea, is that when you look at society as a whole, Obviously, masturbation isn't banned, but if you look at it from a conservative religious perspective, uh, you are told that masturbation is a sin and that you're evil for doing that. But we live in a society that is literally like sex forward consistently, like there's sex in media, advertisements everywhere. And I thought that that was such a fascinating idea of like, okay, you can have sex once you're in a relationship but here's all this like forced stimulation that you have to have, but you can't do anything about it. And I was like, this is a really meta 
and fantastic commentary just by introducing these small concepts. Well, then, you know, I feel like it also brings up the whole pressure of not being in a relationship. I mean, you have that woman that's constantly throwing herself at Colin Farrell at first, and she calls him all the time, and she basically tells him that she's going to kill herself by jumping off the fourth floor. <laughs> I is that the bis? Is that the biscuit woman? Yeah, and the way she's a, and she just and she doesn't die. She's just lying there and screaming. And Colleen Farrell is like, "Well, I hope she dies quickly because I need to take yeah. a nap." <laughs> she like she she like uh, just comes at him and says like, "I'll just have sex with you." Like literally, just like throwing herself at him. Uh, oh my god! Yet yeah, so the whole dynamics of the hotel is really fascinating, and I love the idea of like you get turned into an animal and released into the wild. Like, what a weird thing. And Colin Farrell is, is, uh, says he has to be a lobster. It's funny. It, it's funny, but I do think it's kind of interesting that he wants to be a lobster because a lobster um, lives to be 100 years and they're cold-blooded. Olivia Coleman's like, great choice. <laughs> Fantastic yeah, Olivia choice. <laughs> I, you know, it's... Uh, so all that happens there and then at one point for some reason the maid helps him escape yeah at the moment you don't know why at the moment yes you don't know why at that very moment but the maid helps him escape and that's when we get introduced to one of my favorite characters in the film leah sado who uh i've i've talked about my fondness for leah sado before but she is phenomenal in this as like the the so-called leader of the single people. I love the whole concept of like, have you done, have you dug your own grave? Oh God. Yeah. We, we dance alone. That's why we only play electronic music. (laughs) That's that scene. That's just that wide shot of them like dancing outside together. It's so fantastic. And you don't hear any music because they all have headphones on. Well, and then there's that part where she's like, I know we're all celebrating, but have you dug your own grave yet? (laughs) i love do you love her with all of my heart how much do you love her on a scale of one to four 15 14 14 is a very impressive score (laughs) like who comes up with this dialogue (laughs) it's so good i love it and then obviously we're introduced to rachel wise's character who the two of them start to uh her and colin farrell start to develop this really budding romance and they, de- they they develop a really wild way to communicate with each other that i thought was worth bringing up ray the way that they they like use the different gestures to communicate with each other well yeah they, he's like if i raise my hand in this way but it's with a fist then it means i love you but if i do it this way it means we have to go have sex or something like that yeah. <laughs> And that's that that's uh, leads into one of my favorite lines in the movie where Rachel Wise is talking about uh, when she's talking about uh, that she had a dream about Colin Farrell the night before. She's like talking about the outfit she wears. and She's like, and then he fucked me up the ass. I that's the thing I love about Yorgos. And it's similar to what Ray talked about with with uh, Wes Anderson, which is like there's such this like 
polished feel to Yorgos's movies that when things like that that are really extreme are said kind of out of the blue they really affect you emotionally in a very intense way yeah it's definitely i'm, I'm gonna start calling it provocative swearing yes because i was as soon as as soon as she said because like she started talking about it and i'm like oh she had a really sweet dream about him and then when she says he fucked me in my ass i was like i did like what is he thinking when it comes up with this dialogue? <laughs> but I, I, I love the attention to detail. It's not in, it's up. Yes. Oh, God. Yeah, it's so funny. And then, so they start doing this thing where they go into town together and they pose as a married couple. Which I thought that was really interesting, the part where um she's she goes to the to shop for something and the, the cop stops him and he's trying to check for his papers to make sure he really is married. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's 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 really really fascinating because Ray and I have talked about this before about like movies that are on a smaller scale that have like really interesting ideas. I feel like Yorgos hints at a lot of really fascinating little nuances in this world. Like how does the real big city world operate? Like how is how controlled is this environment? I I just think it's really fascinating. Well, and the worlds feel very dystopian-like. Oh, 100%. In every single world, there's like a reality to it. It's really strange. I honestly, that's what I love so much about it is because of how strange it is. Um, and we do end up finding out that the reason why the maid let him out is because uh, the maid's brother got killed. And he was a mole, <laughs> which is apparently the... <laughs> the the animal no one wants to be i don't know why but there's something so funny about that but the uh the loners decide that they're going to like raid the hotel and david ends up david is colin farrell's character he ends up telling the nosebleed woman that john fakes all his nosebleeds which i thought was really interesting yeah he just kind of comes in and starts telling her like, because it looks like everybody else is actually doing some mind games, but he actually goes in to tell the truth. Hang, I just think it's funny when the little girl, he's like, hence tries to hand the dead knife. Here, dad, kill him. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought it was a really interesting commentary on society, too, when they confront Olivia Coleman and her husband and they like tr tell the guy, like, if you shoot your wife you'll save yourself but they don't load the gun and force the two of them to face each other i thought that was really interesting yeah i remember when that scene happened i was like "Ooh, that's cruel well that message of relationships hits even harder because here is the person that's supposedly in charge of making sure that these relationships are held up to in a very specific way who apparently they're not even comfortable and they're enough in their own relationship to you know not do that which i thought was really interesting well and i like the fact that they're very like ever there's this big conversation about how people need to be compatible but there's way but which i think this is also commentary on like everyone wants to be compatible on something so superficial but when it comes to deeper commitment then you know that that gets put into question when it comes to a deeper commitment like i love that part where they're explaining the process and they're like, yeah, they'll be the, they'll start living together and then they'll be moved to the yachts. And it's like, and if they keep fighting and they can't resolve the, the arguments, we'll give them children that makes the arguments go away. <laughs> <laughs> 
And I think, you know, this leads up to, I think in every Lanthimos movie, there's that one moment that just like is, there is no humor in it. It's just very dark and it's very disturbing. And that's when, you know, everything between Colin Farrell and Rachel Wise up to this moment it's very beautiful the way that it's portrayed and that's part of the movie I really love. But when they, when Leah Sado says that she's going to take her to the city to get her short sightedness cured, but instead she has her blinded and that like, to me, that strips away all the humor and everything. That's like the grounded, just really depressing part of the film. Cause you know, you, you are obviously rooting for Colin Farrell and for him to, to find happiness but it is interesting that the relationship gets thrown for such a curveball just because she went blind. Exactly. They can't find anything else that they have in common, which obviously it, it's, it shows kind of the superficial nature of relationships as a whole. I mean, it, it's like, you know, I meet so many people in the world and you I, I'm sure you've been the same way where I've, I've met people in my life that are, you know, friends of mine who they've either been married or been in a relationship for a really long time. And on the surface, they don't necessarily have a whole lot in common. Uh, but like their relationships work, they work together as a couple because they find other things. And I think if relationships are solely based on superficial elements, they don't work. And I really think that's what Yorgos was going for with this. And then like, obviously the end of the film which is left up to ambiguity's sake which is Colin Farrell decides to go into the restroom with a steak knife and possibly blind himself we don't really know whether he does or not but he thinks about it and this whole idea of like what lengths do people go to to be in a relationship which did he do it or did he not do it you know honestly I don't know the answer to that question and I don't think it really matters because yeah. I think at the end of the day, leaving it ambiguous keeps that question so much more interesting of like when it comes to relationships, like if you have to sacrifice everything about yourself to be in a relationship where you kind of lose sight of who you are, literally lose sight in this specific circumstance, is it really worth it in the end? Which I think it's kind of interesting commentary that when he was with that other woman he pretended to be this heartless person and eventually he got caught up in that lie and now he's basically doing the same thing by contemplating getting rid of his sight exactly literally giving up that part of himself just so that he can prescribe to this uh to this very superficial ideology that society has created about people having to be in relationships and that's why i i personally think this movie is a work of genius and there's something more i get out of it every single time i watch it which is really impressive and i like this is uh yorgos's first time working with a24 and i don't know if you agree with me ray but this is like the definitive a24 vibes type of movie oh yeah absolutely uh but i love the lobster uh I was like messing around the other day trying to think about some of my favorite films of all time and this would be in my top five movies ever made. Yes, I love this movie so much. I constantly think about it all the time. I just think that it's it really check marks everything that I look for in a piece of filmmaking, which is just comp like we talk about it with everything everywhere all at once this year. 
this is a movie that is so unique and so just completely authentic and has such an amazing vision and execution of vision that I don't have a negative thing I can say about it. I, th- I personally think it's a perfect film. I, it, it definitely got its point across and it made very like poignant <clears throat> commentaries on, on how society operates with relationships. And yeah, I agree. It was, it was fantastic. It probably was my favorite too of the three that I saw. And uh, yeah, that's that starts uh, Yorgos Lanthimos's relationship with A24 for a couple of films and for Colin Farrell, who would appear in the next 2017 film, uh, Killing of a Sacred Deer, filmed in Cincinnati, Ohio. Woo woo. <laughs> uh, this movie is a wild ride. That's putting it mildly. All of his movies are a wild ride. Uh, I saw this movie in the theater, and I, th- I, as soon as that opening shot started, where it's literally like, do you know that is footage of a ho- open heart surgery? Like an actual open heart like surgery? Re- like that's real, real footage of open heart surgery. Uh, as soon as I saw that, I was like, I cannot, I was like, I cannot believe that they put this in a movie, and it really took me by surprise. Well, and it's there for an uncomfortable amount of time. Yeah, 100%. You really have to focus on it for a while. And uh, we're introduced to Colin Farrell's character, who I would say pretty much plays a similar character to who he is in The Lobster. And that's what I like about Yorgos's movies, is I feel like most of his characters are very blank slate. Yeah, there isn't much of a, like much of anything besides what you're getting on. Like, what you see is what you get type of thing. Exactly. It's like you get their occupations and you get their family dynamics, but I feel like as mu- about like personality traits or things that they're into, I feel like Yorgos keeps those characters relatively vague so that you can put yourself in their situation. And I thought this was really interesting and I know people uh, talk about it a lot, but uh, Lanthimos says that he inspired this movie based on the Greek tragedy. Um, I believe it's from Euripides. It's called Iphigenia in Aulis, uh, which... This makes sense because it does feel like a Greek tragedy. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Um, so basic plot is uh, Colin Farrell's a surgeon. Uh, he goes to a diner to meet this 16-year-old kid pay- played by Barry Keoghan who gives like the creepiest performance of his career. Uh, his father died a few years earlier. And at first, it's weird because he feels almost like a father figure to him at first. And you're kind of like, where is this going? Like, what's going to happen? That's when he shows up to his office the one day. And I feel like this scene was really almost just like the beginning of Barry Keoghan's, like, cynical uh, nature. Where he, like, tells Colin Farrell that he's having chest pain. And that he thinks he's got the same... Well, and he walks in and he just takes off his... Yeah. Like, <laughs> just unprompted. You're like, what is And this? he's like, I think I've got the same thing that killed my dad. And so... Colin Farrell's like, okay, we'll run tests on you or whatever. Um, and for some reason, he is, like, dead set on telling him that his mom finds him attractive. I thought that scene with Alicia Silverstone was so, like, such an interesting inclusion. Were you like, it's Batgirl! <laughs> it's, that's, uh, like, it's funny how Alicia Silverstone has popped up in some, like, really great movies over the past couple years. Like, did you see The Lodge? No, I haven't. Yeah, so The Lodge, it's fantastic. It's on Hulu. You should watch it sometime. Really great horror movie. Uh, But she showed up in like the first like 10 minutes of it. Uh, And I'm always like, 
how does she <laughs> how does she just show up in the most random stuff and also did you notice that the uh the little kid in this one is the kid from mid 90s yes i did notice that what i know you love mid 90s as much as i do uh but yeah so you get all that and finally it gets to the point where you find out that Barry Keoghan says, okay, this is what's happening. Uh, your entire family is going to start getting sick. And there's, it don't, he gives them like a, uh, like a, like a set of things that's going to happen. He says like, they will become paralyzed. They'll stop eating. They'll bleed from their eyes and then they'll die. Yeah. And they said that the, the bleeding from their eyes, once they bleed from their eyes, it's pretty quick after that they die. Yes, and that the only way that it'll stop is if he kills one of them. Essentially saying that it, like, sets the balance of things, which v- feels very Greek mythology. Because a lot of times when you when you see stories from Greek myth, there's a lot about an eye for an eye in a lot of those stories. And what's interesting is watching the slow decline of his kids... Um, and it's, it's horrifying, especially like, and I felt like this was really evil, was Barry Keoghan taking an interest in Colin Farrell's daughter, uh, which I don't know if you saw it when it was first released, but the trailer to the movie was her acapella singing that Ellie Golding song, which was haunting. Well, and that scene is so like unsettling to watch. It is a hundred percent. And I think I don't want to take away from the fact because Ray and I are talking about this and it sounds very bleak because it is, but it's still hilarious. <laughs> like there are still so many scenes in this movie that make me laugh so hard. Colin Farrell is trying to argue with himself that he didn't do anything wrong where he's like a surgeon never kills a patient. An anesthesiologist could kill a patient, but a surgeon never can. <laughs> like there's something about like his own cynicism that like makes me laugh. And Ray mentioned pre podcast, but like when Colin Farrell and Nicole Kidman go to have sex the one time and she literally just like sprawls herself out on the bed. Like it's, it's hilarious. And I do think, Oh yeah. <laughs> I want to shout out Nicole Kidman. Cause I do think that she gives a great performance in this movie. I feel so bad for Nicole Kidman. Cause I feel like she's gotten such a bad rep as being this like, you know, Hollywood star, you know, entitled Hollywood star, but she actually is a phenomenal actor. She does a great job of everything I've seen her do. And you know what? I get up and salute her every time I go to AMC theaters and see that opening. I stand <laughs> and salute, salute her. Uh, Cause she's a hero. Um, also, I just wanted to say, if you want to know how fucked up this movie is, the the line when Barry Keoghan is like t- trying to get Colin Farrell to interested in, in Alicia Silverstone, he's like, "My mom's really attracted to you. She's got a great body." Oh yeah. <laughs> like, see, but so when they first start getting sick, and this is what Ray and I were talking about earlier, they literally get to a point where they can't walk, and they're pulling themselves around the house. And it makes me laugh every time. But what really makes me laugh is when they pull themselves up and down the staircases. There's a scene that had me laughing more than it probably should have. And it's when when the daughter and the son are talking about who's going to die. And then the son drags himself all the way downstairs, cuts his hair... And then Colin Farrell is, like, cooking or something. And it's this wide shot of Colin Farrell, like, cooking. And then you see, like, his son slowly starts crawling 
into the screen. And then he's like, Dad, I cut my hair. Do you like yeah. it? That is, oh, and, and, you know, I, I think I skipped over it before, but I think it's really interesting that Barry Keoghan has that line in the movie where he's like, don't you understand? It's metaphorical. It's, it's a, it's symbolic. Like he's essentially like telling you what you're supposed to feel, which I thought was really cool. Yeah. He just spells it out for him and for the audience. Yeah. And it's, it's great. It's like, uh, this movie, it's so strange, but it's so impactful. And this is, I think this is Lanthimos's longest runtime. But I don't know if you agree with me, Ray. For a two-hour movie, this shit's brisk. Like, you're so hooked in this material. It's almost like an anxiety attack watching it. You're just, like, ready for the ending because you're like, what is going to happen? And as per usual, the endings end up turn out being so ambiguous. Every, every single time in a Lanthimos movie, you can tell. Even the favorite, which I'll talk about uh, in a little bit, ends pretty ambiguously. But his kids both start getting sick. And I think you can really see Colin Farrell wants to do everything that he finally can do to like make sure that his kids are okay. Getting to the point where they capture Barry Keoghan and lock him in the basement. Oh, yeah. Nicole Kidman ends up getting so hurt by all of it and just, like, upset that she ends up just letting him go because I think she realizes there really is no other answer. What I thought was really interesting about that whole ordeal, too, is that that whole situation where he's he's tied up, but Barry Kilgan is still very much, like, chill with it. Like, he's not fighting. He's not trying to, like, do anything. He's just kind of fine with it. Exactly. And... It's, it's really, it's really interesting because he is like the, when you think of Greek mythology, he's like the, the deity in this sense. There's nothing that can stop what is going to happen. He's just along for the ride, which I think exists in a lot of Greek mythology is that there's so many characters that it's like, yeah, we've established a set of ground rules. This is what's going to happen and you can do nothing to change it. And I do think it's really interesting. Barry Kilgan has a really interesting part in this film where he tells, um, I think he's talking to the daughter and he tells her that he feels, um, that he feels like he's angry because he hasn't, he has spent less time with him. And there's this like sense of jealousy coming from Barry Kilgan because he's choosing to spend more time with his family than with him. And, and you can tell that's the the uh, absence from the father as well, uh, which is a really interesting idea. I was going to say, here's something I thought about that. I don't know if this crossed your mind or maybe I missed it. I don't know. Maybe I missed it in the dialogue. Um, couldn't Colin Farrell just turn it on himself? You, you think about that. And I thought about that when the film ended. It was like, well, you could technically kill yourself. But at the same time, you can tell it's that element of like, he shouldn't have to die. Because like, he's the provider in his family. And he's, you know, all of these things. And you could tell his ego would never allow him to do that. Well, that was going to be my next point. Is like, is it a commentary on ego? On the fact that I can't, I, I can't die. I, I'm, I'm, I'm the hero of the story. I cannot die. I'm the protagonist. Well, you get that in the fact that, like, you know, surgeons kill people every day, whether that's by accident or whether that's, like, the risky surgery. The fact that he wasn't even able to admit that he could kill a person and place all the blame on the anesthesiologist shows you 
the amount of ego that he has. Which then you have the whole the whole thing with Nicole Kidman and the anesthesiologist in the car. He's like, anesthesiologists don't kill people. You know that. <laughs> yes, exactly. And that leads up to the end of the film where literally he can't make a decision and his son starts bleeding from the eyes. So he ends up literally in a horrifying sequence, like duct taping all of them and covers their heads with bags and just spins in a circle with a hat over his face firing a gun and i remember seeing it in the theater and i was like shaking yeah that scene was intense especially because and we talked about this off the podcast it's not just one magical shot he it makes he misses a couple times Mm -hmm. he he almost shoots his wife and his daughter and he ends up killing his son and what i thought was really interesting and that really paralleled this to greek myth for me is like the end scene where they go into the diner And it's like in Greek myth, all of these horrible tragedies would happen to people and they still would have to exist in the same world. And I think it's crazy that they go in, they barely interact, and then they just leave. Yeah. In fact, there's this this awkward, like, they look at each other, but nothing much comes out from it. No, exactly. And and like I said, I think it's 100% indicative of, like, Greek myth and those types of stories, which obviously have influenced Yorgos and his storytelling. Um, And I wanted to quickly mention, because I talked to Ray about this uh, before the podcast, but uh, the cinematography in this film is very reminiscent of Kubrick to me. There's a lot of, like, headspace left, very, like, wide rooms, uh... Very reminiscent of the way that Kubrick shoots his movies. I really could see that a lot in this. And I think that that continues in the favorite. But I love this movie. I honestly, this and The the Lobster are contenders for top, top 10 in A24's catalog, in my opinion. I love both of these movies quite a bit. I love the suspense. I love just how dark it is. I, I just love this movie. Sacred Deer was just as weird just as crazy just as wild but also with that dark uncomfortable comedic punch to it but yeah i love this movie this was obviously the last one that ray saw so i will quickly talk about the film he released a year later which is the favorite which i really want ray to see uh because this won olivia coleman the academy award as it should have this is a story about uh queen anne And it's literally about uh, her confidant is played by Rachel Wise, who shows up again in this film. The two of them are super close. They have like a really weird relationship and they are actually romantically involved. Well, Emma Stone is this young girl who is like this really impoverished woman who like has been kicked out of her community and she ends up showing up there and she becomes just like a maid. Well, she somehow ends up getting close to the queen and the queen starts to like pull, put up her position of power to where the two of them start to become romantically involved. And so it becomes this love triangle that has a whole lot of like backstabbing and there's a lot of crazy things that happen throughout the film that these characters do. And what's so interesting about Olivia Coleman's character is Queen Anne is that she thinks she has all the power, but Emma Stone and Rachel Wise are manipulating her in every way imaginable. And it's all about that fight for power, which I think exists in a lot of period pieces. And this film still has the darkness of Yorgos Lanthimos's work and the humor of it while also being 
somewhat historically accurate. Uh, and obviously like, it's really interesting to see throughout a period of time where men were so like dominant, like obviously very patriarchal society watching a film about so many women in power. And I thought that that was a really cool flip in this type of a genre and all the performances are great. I thought you'd find this really interesting, Ray, when Yorgos filmed this movie, he wanted it to be as period accurate as possible. There is no artificial lighting in this movie. Everything is completely naturally lit to the point where they do a scene outside that everything is lit by candles. This movie is phenomenal. Uh, it's, I would say this is probably his most audience accessible film, if that makes any sense. But it's still, don't take away from the fact that even though this might just look like a period piece, it's still disturbing. And it's still violent. And it's still wild. Uh, and I absolutely love this movie. I think that it fits in his catalog perfectly. And I I have given every Yorgos Lanthimos film a five star. I love his movies so much. He's one of my favorite working filmmakers. And Ray and I were talking about it before the podcast. But his next film is called Poor Things. It's an adaptation of sort of a, a Frankenstein-esque story about a woman who tries to drown herself to get away from her abusive husband. And the woman uh, gets her brain replaced by the brain of her unborn child. And the cast is Emma Stone, Willem Dafoe, Mark Ruffalo, Jared Carmichael, Christopher Abbott, Margaret Qualley, and Rami Youssef. Which is a really great cast. Uh, I'm really looking forward to this movie. Uh, it's put out by uh, Searchlight Pictures, who I believe uh, put out um, The Favorite as well. But that's Yorgos Lanthimos. I love his movies. I think we covered a really wide array of his material. And Ray, I really want to say that I appreciate you for taking time out of your week to watch his movies because I was very excited to hear what you had to say about them. And I'm really glad that you liked them from the sounds of it. Yeah, no, no, they were they were a good time. They were definitely different. Um, it's really cool. Like I mentioned earlier, like I've seen so many different arrays of movies that it was cool to... Even after watching movies for so many years, I can still be surprised by someone's vision, for sure. I think that it's really cool that especially with A24, that like, obviously Dogtooth got nominated for an Academy Award, but I feel like The Lobster is really what blew Lanthimos' career up. And for A24 to give him the chance to make his really weird films... And to put them out in the general public to the point where, like, the favorite was made on, like, a $15, 15 million dollar budget and made, like, $95 million. And Yeah, so, like, it's crazy to think that giving these independent directors the ability to make these films and what they can, what they can do. And to know that Yorgos Lanthimos, no matter what movie you're going to see from him, it's going to be a unique vision. And that's what I respect so much about him as a filmmaker. And I can't wait to see what he has to offer. I can't wait to see his new films. And I absolutely loved this series we just did about these directors, Ray. I thought it was so wonderful. I had such a fun time doing it with you. Uh, I think that it'll be cool. Maybe sometime next year we can do another segment of these where we pick five more directors. I think that would be a lot of fun. I love giving these filmmakers the spotlight and just talking about some of these movies we love so dearly. 
it's it's definitely a fun format it's definitely one that takes ray and i a little while because we have to prep watching a lot of movies unless it's the director we're really familiar with but we love it and uh we'd love to hear what you guys have to say about these directors or maybe let us know some directors that you love if you head over to the film monsters podcast and uh and let us know some of your directors. Maybe we've never seen any of their stuff, and we'd love to visit it. Do it up, do it up. We'd be we'd be excited. I know that there's some directors out there that I still would like to talk about, um, as I'm sure you do too. So the the well, the well is far from dry. Absolutely. I I know there's a lot of topics that Ray and I would like to discuss, but I think what we'd like to bring up now is that we're getting close to Christmas. It's December. Ray and I love talking about movies when it comes to themes of holiday and things like that. So we thought for next week it would be fun to talk about films that take place during winter time. Not necessarily a Christmas film, but films we love that take place in that snowy season that just give you that feeling of winter time. Not necessarily Christmas themed, but just set around winter. Just, you know, winter, you know, it's snowy. Or maybe it's not snowy. Maybe it's just cold. Um, it's raining a lot. But what basically what we're saying is we're going to be talking about the Twilight series. <laughs> yes, we're going to talk about the Twilight series. <laughs> That's my favorite film set around wintertime, 100%. I'm so glad that you were able to suss that out. That That's my favorite films around. I love those. So... Uh, with what to watch this week, I know Ray, you said you watched Yorgos Lanthimos, so you didn't have much else to watch, but there is a movie I really quickly wanted to mention if you don't mind. Actually, you know what? I do go ahead and mention it, but there is one that I want to bring up that I didn't watch this week, but I watched recently that we haven't discussed yet. Perfect. So I really quickly wanted to bring up, I watched a film called Bones and All from director Luca Guadagnino, which I'm sure all of you that follow me on any of my platforms know. I have raved about his remake of Suspiria. That's one of my favorite horror movies, and I loved this movie. It's definitely in contention for one of my favorites of the year. For those of you that don't know, it's about two young kids that meet that they're both cannibals but what's really interesting about it is it's not cannibalism in the sense that you think of just like a psychopathic serial killer it's almost treated as vampirism that it's like this like inherent need to consume flesh and that there's nothing they can do to control it. It's even like fantastical enough to where their senses are so heightened that they can smell other cannibals and know when they're in the presence of another one. They call them feeders in the movie. But it's a really great allegory for like, you know, I feel like everyone in life gets to a point where they just want to find whether it's a romantic partner or a friend or someone who has experienced something in the same vein that they've experienced. So whether that's like losing a loved one or dealing with something like addiction or whatever it is. And this movie takes something so extreme, like consuming human flesh and brings these two young people who have essentially been abandoned by their families, completely ostracized and that they find each other at this point in their lives to try to build each other up and find out how they can solve this issue that they both have and i just thought it was beautiful it's incredibly well shot it's just absolutely amazing and ray knowing the types of films you love you're gonna love it 
for a second I thought you were going to say everyone reaches a point in their life where they just want to find someone they can be cannibals with. Yes, yeah, someone that you could just eat other human beings with. That's exactly what I was going for. So what is it that you watched this week, or recently, sir, that you would like to talk about? I, too, watched a movie recently that could also be a contender for movie of the year. And I know you watched it as well, so I'm excited to just discuss it very briefly. And that movie is called The Menu. Oh, the menu. I uh, I had a very big fondness for the menu. I really enjoyed it quite a bit. I can sit here and talk about the obvious Ray Fiennes and the genius that he is. But I won't. I'll just... But I won't. I won't even talk about the rest of the, the cast because if you look at that cast, you know you're in for a great film. Everyone in that film is great. What I will talk about is the messaging and the themes touched in this movie um, and how, you know, I think a lot of people think, oh, it's a culinary movie with like a horror twist. But I feel like the themes and motifs in this movie could be plugged to any any fandom, any lifestyle, any form of entertainment. And I feel like it's definitely poking fun of all these different you know, fads and fandoms that we go through day in and day out. What, what I will say about the menu is that I spent most of my life in the restaurant industry and that movie struck a nerve (laughs) and, and probably I was just like the whole time I was in there, I was like, yeah, I get where these people are coming from, but I think there's, you know, it's a satire obviously, but I think there's so much, nuance in it and really incredible like little details that are in the movie that are just so well done and i love uh i love where the movie goes to and for some reason i really started craving a s'more at the end (laughs) i don't know why but i just really wanted a s'more (laughs) or or a that's got to be that's got to be hard for you mr vegetarian to see such a beautiful burger made at the end of that movie it actually it actually did get me (laughs) craving a burger i'm not gonna lie yeah, it, well, the whoever whoever was actually like in charge of the production design on that movie, the food all looked gorgeous. Yeah, no, for sure. Also, one of my favorite one of my favorite lines in the movie was, "What the hell is this? It's a tortilla." <laughs> I, was, I was like dying in the theater, like it's a tortilla. Yeah, we know what it is, but no, what's on this? It's a tortilla. That also the girl who played like the the main girl that was in that she was phenomenal. Which one? The 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 girl who got in the one on one fight with Anya Taylor Joy. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. The the I think she was like the hostess. Yeah, she was like the hostess that was presenting all the courses. But God, Ray finds intimidating clap. <laughs> Is he gonna keep doing that? Oh, that was oh, all the cast of characters. And I really did you. I read an interview and I thought you'd think this was funny that John Leguizamo said they based that character off Steven Seagal. Oh my god! <laughs> I, which was hilarious, and I just love Ray Fiennes saying that the whole reason that he was there because he wasted his time watching that movie, movie on his off day. <laughs> I just, and then the other guy that came in that was like the the Coast Guard officer that came in that was like, oh, that was one of my favorite movies. <laughs> I it love was, it. There's it was so much fun, honestly. Ray and I don't want to give away any spoilers for that movie, but it it's it's a good time, and obviously the Queen Anya Taylor Joy just literally eats up every second of screen time in that movie, like eats it up. You know what? Though we can talk about her all day long, but I was actually 
more drawn to Ray Fiennes. Like, that says something when a different, when a movie starring Anya Taylor Joy and my eyes were drawn to a different actor. Oh, he was he was phenomenal. I think they were definitely the two standouts. Oh yeah, no, but Ray Fiennes, he's he's a he's a treasure. I was gonna say national, but I don't think he's he's American. He's he is a national treasure. <laughs> he should be. Could you imagine if Nick Cage played that role? <laughs> <laughs> that now that's a movie. Now we're talking about a movie here. Nick Cage as the as the pretentious chef. Uh, that would that would have been amazing. I can't wait to see Nick Cage in that vampire movie that he's going to be in. As as Count Dracula? Yes, so much. I wish that they'd just cast Nick Cage in every movie. Honestly, that would make life more entertaining. I still want to see, and if our podcast ever gets a big enough audience, I want to do like a, a, a change.org petition or something to make a film starring, not like, oh, we're going to just briefly include no starring the two main people need to be Nicolas Cage and Jeff Goldblum. Oh my god. I would I would pay so much money to watch that. Buddy cop comedy. A hundred percent. I would pay so much money to watch that movie. So that's what Ray and I watched this week and like we said we're gonna be doing our next episode about winter themed movies. As always you can follow us over at the Film Monsters Podcast on Instagram where we post about our upcoming episodes and Ray does all kinds of things over there. And you can also follow us on our personal Instagrams at myexitunfair and analog C if you wanna see every Waxwork Records release. <laughs> Sorry, I just had to put... I thought people would think that was funny. Um, But yeah, uh, you can follow us over there. And yeah, we're looking forward to the holiday season. We've got some Christmas episodes planned. We've got some fun things in store, obviously. I'm sure you guys are anxiously awaiting hearing Ray and I's favorite films of 2022, Everything Everywhere All at Once in the Northman. Or who knows? They could change. We don't really know at this point. I've seen a lot of great movies. I haven't really moved around my list yet. Ray, I'll be interested to hear what you have to say about about your favorite films of the year. Yeah, I'm excited to hear it. I feel like I have, I, I've had so many, I've seen so many recently, and there's still a couple more coming out that I am not 100% set of how everything's going to rank. Teaser, it's going to be really rough between the Firestarter remake and Minions Rise of Gru. Choose the way um, Colin <laughs> how do I choose? choose how to kill one of his How do members. I choose? <laughs> Just put... So what I'll do is I'll I'll print those movie posters off, put them in my wall, and just get like a shotgun and just spin around in a circle until I shoot one of them. That, ladies and gentlemen, is how Nate got divorced. Yeah, that's that's how my HOA kicks me out of my community. Goodbye, everybody. Uh, Bye. Bye.